0: Section 7. Part 3 of Section 2 of the Introduction of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan. Commentaries on the Laws of England by William Blixton, Book 1. Introduction, Section 2, Part 3. Legislators and their laws are said to compel and oblige, not that by any natural violence they so constrain a man, as to render it impossible for him to act otherwise than as they direct, which is the strict sense of obligation, but because, by declaring and exhibiting a penalty against offenders, they bring it to pass that no man can easily choose to transgress the law, since By reason of impending correction, compliance is in a high degree preferable to disobedience. And, even where rewards are proposed as well as punishments threatened, the obligation of the law seems chiefly to consist in the penalty. For rewards, in their nature, can only persuade and allure. Nothing is compulsory but punishment. It is held it is true, and very justly, by the principle of our ethical writers, that human laws are binding upon men's consciences. But if that were the only, or most forcible obligation, the good only would regard the law, and the bad would set them at defiance. And, true as this principle is, it must still be understood with some restriction. It holds, I apprehend, as to rights, and that, When the law has determined the field to belong to Titius, it is matter of conscience no longer to withhold or to invade it. So also, in regard to natural duties, and such offenses as are mala in se, here we are bound in conscience, because we are bound by superior laws, before those human laws were in being, to perform the one and abstain from the other but in revelation to those laws which enjoin only positive duties, and forbid only such things as are not mala in se, but mala prohibita, merely annexing a penalty to non-compliance. Here I apprehend conscience is no further concerned than by directing a submission to the penalty, in case of our breach of those laws, for otherwise the multitude of penal laws in a state would not only be looked upon as an impolitic, but would also be a very wicked thing, if every such law were a snare for the conscience of the subject. But in these cases, the alternative is offered to every man, either abstain from this, or submit to such a penalty, and his conscience will be clear, whichever side of the alternative he thinks proper to embrace. Thus, By the statutes for preserving the game, a penalty is denounced against every unqualified person that kills a hare. Now this prohibitory law does not make the transgression a moral offence. The only obligation in conscience is to submit to the penalty if levied. I have now gone through the definition laid down of a municipal law, and have shown it that it is a rule of conduct prescribed by the supreme power in a state, commanding what is right, and prohibiting what is wrong, in the explication of which I have endeavored to interweave a few useful principles concerning the nature of civil government, and the obligation of human laws. Before I conclude this section, it may not be amiss to add a few observations concerning the interpretation of laws. When any doubt arose, Upon the construction of the Roman laws, the usage was to state the case to the emperor in writing, and take his opinion upon it. This was certainly a bad method of interpretation. To interrogate the legislature, to decide particular disputes, is not only endless, but affords great room for partiality and oppression. The answers of the emperor were called his rescripts, and these had in succeeding cases the force of perpetual laws, though they ought to be carefully distinguished by every rational civilian from those general constitutions which had only the nature of things for their guide. The Emperor Macrinius and his historian Capitolinus, informs us, had once resolved to abolish these rescripts and retain only the general edicts. He could not bear that the hasty and crude answers of such princes as Commodus and Caracalla should be reverenced as laws. But Justinian thought otherwise, and he has preserved them all. In like manner the canon laws, or decretal epistles of the popes, are all of them rescripts in the strictest sense. Contrary to all true forms of reasoning, they argue from particulars to generals. The fairest and most rational method to interpret the will of the legislator is by exploring his intentions at the time when the law was made, by signs the most natural and probable, and these signs are either the words, the context, the subject matter, the effects and consequence, or the spirit and reason of the law. Let us take a short view of them all. 1. Words are generally to be understood in their usual and most known signification, not so much regarding the propriety of grammar as their general and popular use. Thus, the law mentioned by Pufendorf, which forbade a layman to lay hands on a priest, was a judge to extend to him who had hurt a priest with a weapon. Again, terms of art, or technical terms, must be taken according to the acceptation of the learned in each art, trade, and science. So in the act of settlement, where the crown of England is limited to the princess Sophia and the heirs of her body, being protestants, it becomes necessary to call in the assistance of lawyers to ascertain the precise idea of the words heirs of her body, which in a legal sense comprise only certain of her lineal descendants. Lastly, where words are clearly repugnant in two laws, the later shall take place of the elder. Leges posteriores priores contrarias abrogant is a maxim of universal law as well as our own constitutions, and accordingly it was laid down by a law of the Twelve Tables at Rome. Quod populus postremum iusit, id ius ratum esto. 2. If words happen to be still dubious, we may establish their meaning from the context, with which it may be of singular use to compare a word or a sentence whenever they are ambiguous, equivocal, or intricate. Thus, the proem, or preamble, is often called in to help the construction of an act of parliament. Of the same nature and use is the comparison of a law with other laws, that are made by the same legislator, and have some affinity with the subject, or that expressly relate to the same point. Thus, when the law of England declares murder to be felony without benefit of clergy, we must resort to the same law of England, to learn what the benefit of clergy is, and when the common law centres the monarchical contracts, it affords great light to the subject to consider what the canon law has adjudged to be simony. Three, as to the subject matter, words are always to be understood as having a regard thereto, for that it is always supposed to be in the eye of the legislator, and all his expressions directed to that end. Thus. When the law of our Edward Third forbids all ecclesiastical persons to purchase provisions at Rome, it might seem to prohibit the buying of grain and other victual, but when we consider that the statute was made to repress the usurpations of the papal See, and that the nominations to vacant benefices by the Pope were called provisions, we shall see that the restraint is intended to be laid upon such provisions only. 4. As to the effects and consequences, the rule is, where words bear either none, or a very absurd signification, if literally understood, we must a little deviate from the received sense of them. Therefore, the Bolognian law, mentioned by Puffendorf, which enacted that whosoever drew blood in the streets should be punished with the utmost severity, was held long after debate not to extend to the surgeon... Who opened the vein of a person that fell down in the street with a fit. Five. But lastly, the most universal and effectual way of discovering the true meaning of a law when the words are dubious is by considering the reason and spirit of it, or the cause which moved the legislator to enact it. For when this reason ceases, the law itself ought likewise to cease with it. An instance of this is given in a case put by Cicero, or whoever was the author of the rhetorical treatise inscribed to Herenius. There was a law that those who had in a storm forsook the ship should forfeit all property therein, and the ship and landing should belong entirely to those who stayed in it. In a dangerous tempest all the mariners forsook the ship, except only one sick passenger, who by reason of his disease was unable to get out and escape. By chance the ship came safe to port. The sick man kept possession and claimed the benefit of the law. Now here all the learned agree that the sick man is not within the reason of the law, for the reason of making it was to give encouragement to such as should venture their lives to save the vessel. But this is a merit which he could never pretend to who neither stayed in the ship upon that account, nor contributed anything to its preservation. From this method of interpreting laws, by reason of them, arises what we call equity, which is thus defined by Grotius, the correction of that wherein the law, by reason of its universality, is deficient. For since in laws all cases cannot be foreseen or expressed, it is necessary that when the general decrees of the law come to be applied to particular cases, there should be somewhere a power vested of accepting those circumstances which, had they been foreseen, the legislator himself would have accepted. And these are the cases which, as Grotius expresses it, lex non exacte definit, sed arbitrio boni viri permitit. Equity, thus depending, essentially. Upon the particular circumstances of each individual case, there can be no established rules and fixed precepts of equity laid down, without destroying its very essence, and reducing it to a positive law. And, on the other hand, the liberty of considering all cases in an equitable light must not be indulged too far, lest thereby we destroy all law, and leave the decision of every question entirely in the breast of the judge." And law, without equity, though hard and disagreeable, is much more desirable for the public good than equity without law, which would make every judge a legislator, and introduce most indefinite confusion, as there would then be almost as many different rules of action laid down in our courts as there are differences of capacity and sentiment in the human mind. End of section 7